Hello, and thank you for joining us today on this Ropes and Graves podcast. I'm Jack Ecker, a consultant in our benefits group, and I am based in New York. I am joined by Josh Lichtenstein, an ERISA partner who is also based in New York, and Dan Ward, a Boston-based partner in our litigation and enforcement group. One objective of this podcast series has been to analyze the issues that have led to the many lawsuits in the retirement plan space in recent years and provide guidance for plan sponsors on what steps they can take to be proactive and potentially mitigate their litigation risk. Past episodes have covered specific cases such as Anderson versus Intel, discussed in episode three, which addressed the prudence and potential exposure of offering alternative investments in a plan lineup. We also discussed Hughes versus Northwestern University in episode six, which is an excessive fee lawsuit and will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. In today's episode, we'll take a step back and provide a broader overview of some of the recent claims we have seen and offer some key takeaways for fiduciaries and plan sponsors. Dan, there's been a wave of ERISA litigation over the last few years, and it seems like there's no signs of that trend slowing down. To this end, can you provide an overview of just how prevalent ERISA litigation has been in recent years, especially with respect to the excessive fee lawsuits? Yeah, sure thing. In the last five years, we've seen over 200 complaints alleging breach of fiduciary duty against plan sponsors and service providers regarding excessive fees and other claims of misconduct. Some of these lawsuits were dismissed quickly or procedurally combined with other claims. We don't have the complete picture, but we do know the following stats. So of these cases, 130 reached a motion to dismiss after an average of 237 days of litigation in the case. 33 of the cases reached a decision on class certification after an average of 724 days. That's nearly two years. 27 of the cases reached summary judgment after an average of 986 days pending. And eight cases have reached trial, generally after several years of litigation. I think it's fair to say that if litigation is brought against a plan sponsor or other fiduciary, it will end up requiring the fiduciary to allocate a lot of time, money, and resources to respond to those claims. Josh, can you elaborate on what are the most common claims plaintiffs have been making in these lawsuits? Of course, Jack. Like Dan was just saying, there are a lot of these cases. Based on our review of the cases, the claims typically revolve around the following four key trends. First, there are allegations that the plan sponsor selected and retained overpriced and underperforming investments. In other words, the crux of the claim is that the fiduciary failed to adequately monitor the investment options. ERISA requires a fiduciary to continually monitor the performance and the price of the funds in the retirement plan's investment lineup, and many fiduciaries will rely on a consultant or other advisor to help them discharge that responsibility. If the fiduciary determines that the funds are underperforming or are overpriced compared to benchmarks, then that fiduciary should really consider replacing those funds, or they should have a clear documented rationale for why they've decided to retain them. Second, we see claims with respect to the plan lineup, where fiduciaries, they need to make sure that they are offering an appropriate range of investment alternatives to the participants for them to make selections. There's a safe harbor in the regulations under ERISA, and that requires the majority of plans to include at least three investment options for participants, each of which is diversified and has materially different risk and return characteristics from the others. 
That said, a lot of plan sponsors have broader menus, and we've also seen claims based on there being too many options for the participants to choose from. These claims suggest that fiduciaries should be considering that the majority of the retirement plan participants may not necessarily be investment experts or that conversant with a lot of financial concepts. And so they should ensure that the plan's investment lineup and investment goals of the funds are going to be understandable and appropriate for the specific participant population of a plan sponsor. Another bucket of claims that we've seen are allegations that there were excessive record-keeping and administrative fees being charged. The retirement record-keeping market is continually evolving, and pricing is really quite competitive and fluid right now. Fiduciaries should be keeping their pulse on record-keeping fees, and they should frequently be benchmarking those fees against what their current fees are. The easiest way to do this is probably to periodically issue RFPs for your record-keeping services. We've also seen claims pertaining to the use of multiple record keepers. This is more typical in cases against a university and hospitals that maintain 403B plans, something which you've discussed on some prior podcasts. And this is due to the inherited history of there being multiple record keepers in many of these plans historically. The basis for these claims is usually that a single record keeper would be cheaper and more cost effective than using multiple record keepers. And therefore, a plan fiduciary of a 403B plan should be looking to consolidate plan assets and plan accounts under one record keeper to the extent possible. I'd also like to point out that a significant portion of the lawsuits that we've reviewed typically include more than one of the buckets that I just mentioned. For example, we might see plaintiffs that allege in one suit that the funds in the investment lineup are overpriced. There were too many funds offered in the investment lineup, so it was confusing to plan participants. And the plan is also paying excessive record-keeping fees. Therefore, we think it's advisable for plan sponsors to proceed at all times as if they could be targeted by any of these types of claims. Thanks for that context, Josh. Dan, are there any trends on specific industries that have been targeted or the size of the plans? In other words, are plaintiff firms only targeting specific industries or only going after bigger plans with more assets and plan participants? No, we've seen complaints brought against plan sponsors from all different industries, which cover plans of all sizes. Now, in the first wave of lawsuits, the initial targets were large asset management firms who offered their own proprietary funds to their employees. In those proprietary fund cases, plaintiffs alleged that the inclusion of the proprietary investment products on the plan menu violated ERISA because the plan fiduciaries were promoting the sponsor's own investment products in the 401k plan rather than selecting cheaper or better performing options from the market. But as these litigations gained traction, plaintiffs' firms brought more of the relatively generic excessive fee litigation against businesses and other industries. We've also seen the plaintiff firms bringing more suits against nonprofit institutions as well, including hospitals and universities that sponsor 403B plans. It seems that all plan sponsors are susceptible to having a risk of litigation brought against them, and it's more a matter of when the suit comes, not if the suit comes. Josh, what plaintiff firms should plan sponsors be on the lookout for, and what might be the first clue that a class action suit may be brought against a fiduciary? I completely agree that based on the current trend that we're seeing in terms of volume of these cases, it's really a matter of when, 
not if a lawsuit is going to come against uh, many plan sponsors. So when we think about the leading plaintiff's firms, uh, we've definitely seen that there are some that are bringing most of these cases. Uh, the majority of the ERISA class action lawsuits of these types that we've been seeing have been brought by uh, Capozzi Adler, Schlitzer Bogart and Denton, Shepard Finkelman, Miller and Shaw, and Nicholas Castor. Since most fiduciaries are also going to be planned participants, um, a fiduciary may actually become aware of potential litigation because they may receive a letter as a participant asking them to join uh, a class action lawsuit. Um, and you know, they you could expect that it might be received from uh, one of the firms that I, that I listed out above. And these are really uh, all quite active in this space. So, Josh, how have you been advising clients, general counsel, committees, and or boards to prepare them for potential ERISA litigation? That's a great question, Jack. Um, my main goal in counseling clients in this area has been to give them a refresher on what their core ERISA fiduciary duties and what their best practices to follow under ERISA are. Since these best practices are going to be the most important defense against a potential lawsuit, and are more likely to support a favorable outcome in court if they're well-documented and have been practiced consistently over time. I'll go through some ERISA fiduciary best practices in a moment, but it's important to note that adopting these best practices will not prevent a plan sponsor from being named a defendant. All is not lost, however, because it will increase the chances for a positive result for the plan sponsor if you get sued. In other words, being sued may be inevitable, but if you follow best practices consistently, you can be more confident about uh, potential positive results in court. The starting point for any ERISA fiduciary is going to be documenting the delegation and assignment of fiduciary decisions to a particular committee or through a charter. Typically, the plan sponsor's board of directors will vote to delegate ERISA fiduciary responsibility to an investment committee that's going to be responsible for the plan's fund and investment lineup. And they'll also delegate some of the more planned administrative fiduciary responsibilities to a benefits or human resources committee. These committees should avoid conflicts of interest or any appearance of conflicts of interest. And this can be important for plan sponsors in choosing the members that are going to sit on the committees. This is especially true at asset managers. The next step would be for the delegated committees to form written, concise policies for making fiduciary decisions, such as the investment policy statement or IPS. I would recommend that these policies be reviewed by ERISA counsel before being finalized to make sure that they are reflective of current trends and best practice in the market. Once a good governance structure has been created, it's primarily about making sure that you're continuously monitoring the plan's investment options and ensuring that the plan complies with those adopted formal policies in making investment decisions and in following operational procedures. Some examples of this continuous monitoring would be meeting with an investment advisor on a quarterly basis and evaluating the performance of each fund, carefully selecting and monitoring service providers, which should also include scrutinizing their cybersecurity protocols in accordance with recent DOL guidance. And this is an evolving area, so continued focus will be necessary. And issuing RFPs on a periodic basis in order to benchmark your record-keeping fees, investment advisor fees, and any other fees that are being paid out of participant account balances. Each client should make sure that their plan fees are aligned with the current market. 
a service provider or investment advisor's arrangement may have been favorable to the plan five years ago, but it may be too expensive by current market terms. It's also important to continuously revisit any formal written policies and to revise them as needed. We can't stress enough the importance of having up-to-date and well-documented policies in place and adhering to them. If your practice should shift over time, but your documents stay the same, that can become a roadmap for a plaintiff's firm. Thanks, Josh. Let's look at some example of recent cases. Dan, can you run through a couple of recent ERISA litigation cases that have caught your eye? Yeah, I'll summarize a couple of cases that I've followed closely. The first is Cates v. Treasury of Columbia University. The complaint filed in 2016 alleged that the fiduciaries of the Columbia University retirement plan selected and retained expensive and poor performing investment options that consistently and historically underperformed their benchmarks. And they loaded the university's plans with many retail share class options that were more expensive than institutional share class options in the same mutual funds that were otherwise available. And Columbia also used two record keepers for its plans, TIA and Vanguard which allegedly caused participants in the plans to pay duplicative, excessive, and unreasonable fees for plan record-keeping and administrative services. After five years of litigation, over 350,000 documents produced in discovery, multiple rounds of motion practice, including opposed motions to dismiss, motions for class certification and summary judgment, on April 7, 2021, the parties jointly notified the district court they'd reached an agreement to settle the case on a class-wide basis for $13 million, just five days before the April 12th bench trial was set to begin. Now, I mentioned this for a couple reasons. First, I think it demonstrates the magnitude of the settlements that the plaintiffs are getting. $13 million is not an insignificant amount of money, not to mention all of the expense leading up to the settlement. It also demonstrates how these suits combine multiple claims. In this example, the plaintiffs alleged the fund options were underperforming and overpriced as compared to benchmarks, and the plaintiffs alleged that by having multiple record keepers, participants were paying duplicative fees that caused the overall fees to be excessive. Another recent lawsuit I want to talk about is uh, Johnson v. Russell Investment Management, LLC. Russell Investments provides investment management services to the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line's 401k plan from 2015 to 2019. This lawsuit, which was filed in June, is unusual because the named defendant is an investment manager with proprietary funds that was providing services to a third-party plan. Typically, investment managers are named as defendants in ERISA cases only when offering their own proprietary funds to their own retirement plan with their own employees participating. Here, in short, Russell added its own funds to Royal Caribbean's 401k plan lineup at the outset of their relationship in 2015. The plaintiffs alleged that Russell breached its fiduciary duties by selecting investment options consisting exclusively of its own poorly performing proprietary funds. In 2019, after plan participants had allegedly lost millions, Russell was replaced as the investment manager by American Funds. A similar lawsuit was filed against Russell Investments one month earlier in connection with its role as investment manager for the Caesars Entertainment Retirement Plan. Now, these cases involving Russell Investments will be interesting to watch because, without opining on the merits, suing an investment manager of a 401k as a result of offering its proprietary funds to participants of a third-party plan appears to be a relatively untrodden ground in the ERISA space. A plaintiff's favorable outcome in either case could open the door to potential liability to other investment managers who offer their own funds to plans they service. Thanks, Dan. We'll definitely have to keep an eye 
out on the Russell cases. Josh, any cases that have piqued your attention? Well, Dan hit most of the cases that I think have been the most interesting recently, but I do want to briefly touch on Baker v. John Hancock Life Insurance Company. The allegations in this case appear to be you know, pretty standard based versus other cases that we've seen. John Hancock was um, offering its proprietary funds to 401k plan participants, and allegedly John Hancock was charging excessive fees for those funds. In addition, the plaintiffs uh, alleged that John Hancock was charging excessive record-keeping fees. So the case ultimately settled with John Hancock agreeing to pay $14 million. And so now it's one of the dozens of employers that have been sued under ERISA for putting their own proprietary mutual funds in their workers' 401k plans, uh, along with the likes of Reliance Trust, SunTrust Bank, Fidelity, Deutsche Bank, and others. What's interesting about this settlement, though, is that in addition to the $14 million in payment, John Hancock is also required under the settlement terms to implement a number of non-monetary remedial actions, such as hiring a third-party investment consultant to provide ongoing monitoring and review of the investment options for at least five years, developing an IPS for the plan, and appointing a consultant to assist with issuing an RFP for record-keeping services. So the the settlement terms essentially require John Hancock to comply with the ERISA fiduciary best practices that I was talking about a little bit earlier in the podcast. We'll have to see if future settlements include these best practices, but similar to the Russell case, you know, this is um, this is a development that could have wider ranging um, consequences if we start seeing it pop up more. Yeah, that's certainly interesting that John Hancock walked away from the settlement with a to do list. Again, we'll have to keep monitoring the active and pending cases to see if this becomes more of a trend among settlements. Josh, the cases you and Dan walked through highlight some of the newer trends we've been seeing. What about the status quo? What are the general takeaways from the majority of suits and settlements? Well, we've seen slight variations with courts in different regions, and each case is also dependent on its own unique facts and circumstances, of course. But that said, and we think fiduciaries and plan sponsors should make sure that they're consistently following best practices that we discussed and that these are well documented and periodically reviewed. When it comes to selecting and reviewing investment alternatives and service providers for 401k and 403b plans, whether these practices were in place and whether the fiduciary actually adhered to them and can show they adhered to them should be the primary focus in any lawsuit that includes allegations of ERISA fiduciary breaches. And that's because, you know, as ERISA lawyers always say, ERISA is really focused on process. And so if you follow a prudent process, then um, fiduciaries who are making decisions according to that process, you know, should be found to have discharged their duties appropriately. For example, you know, a fiduciary cannot be absolutely certain that any one fund or investment option will outperform another one, and they're not required to have a crystal ball. But when selecting a fund for the plan's investment lineup, the fiduciary should have in place a diligent process that they're following for evaluating the historical performance and fees of that fund relative to its peers before choosing which fund to add to the lineup. Under ERISA, the fiduciary is going to be scrutinized based on having an appropriate process and following the appropriate process. It should not be that they're being scrutinized based on a failure to predict future outcomes if they followed that process. Great. Thanks, Josh. 
So at this point, some of our listeners may be ready to contact their ERISA counsel and begin to evaluate their current exposure to potential ERISA litigation. And we think that's great and proactive, but we want to make sure you're aware of some potential limits on client attorney privilege specific to ERISA. Dan, can you elaborate on this fiduciary exception? Right. So several circuits have recognized a fiduciary exception to the attorney-client privilege, which says that when an ERISA fiduciary seeks an attorney's advice on a matter of plan administration, and the advice clearly does not implicate the fiduciary in any personal capacity, then the fiduciary cannot invoke the attorney-client privilege. Due to this exception, there may be limited privilege when it comes to legal advice for certain kinds of plan-related matters, including actions or decisions about the investment of plan assets, communications with plan participants about plan administration, and documents describing changes in plan benefits. Thanks, Dan. The fiduciary exception on attorney-client privilege is something our listeners should be aware of and should discuss with their ERISA counsel before seeking substantive legal advice regarding their retirement plans. On that note, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you so much to Dan and Josh for joining me and sharing many valuable insights. For more information on the topics that we have discussed, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can subscribe and listen to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify.